All right, you social butterflies. It's so nice to see that we're talking to people again. Lighthouse Community Church, where name tags and meet and greet go to die. We're, t- we're carrying those with us, church. We got, we got to have something about the days of yore, right? We, we've moved to hyperspace. We've forgotten all the simplistic things in life, like stained glass windows, right? I mean, everything that we have in here is cherished and beautiful. And it's interesting, on a Palm Sunday kind of Holy Week weekend, the, the prep time this week was spent in talking about and thinking about and studying all these things that Israel had to remember. And the focus of one of the things that they're going to be focused on, which is the start of this beautiful week, the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, is something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. And the reason why palms are near and dear to my heart is my previous church was out in La Quinta. And in La Quinta, we are a palm tree kind of church and family, all right? La Quinta is the home of the date palm. And in case you've never been to La Quinta, Palm Springs, Indio, any of that areas, the date, you know, the date shack is where you get a very specific, uh, very sweet date palm shake. And it's interesting, one of those families happened to be at my old church. And so part of the upbringing of my culture for 12 years was to make sure that I was palm tree educated. I told them, I have this scar right here on my arm from sixth grade. I'm palm tree educated. I found out a long time ago, if you ride your bike into a palm tree, a palm tree will greet you in a way that no other tree will greet you. Then he told me this, that's correct, but not all palms are unfriendly. I thought, this is an interesting attitude. He said, these are some of the palms that have thorns, and these are some of the palms. And I went on to learn many different things. I also came to understand why sago palm means, ooh, you're doing well in life if you can put a sago palm out. I said, you know what, to me, all that means nothing, okay? I just want to know about the most lethal one. And he told me, a date palm has about a six to eight inch thorn on it, okay? And if you haven't met a date palm thorn yet, let me tell you about another experience I had when the youth group went out to help a family with overgrown palm trees. We cut and we hacked, and I learned for many years on how to trim a palm tree. By the way, the palm trees in the front building, Lee and Mary, which I believe are the previous pastors, were unkept for about two years. I asked Robin, being the gatekeeper, genie of the building, would you guys mind if I went out there and maintain those? It's something I can do. I've been maintaining those two palms for about three and a half, four years. Okay, I learned this in the desert palm springs. But I also learned this. Do not stomp on a truck full of cut palm branches. The stomping motion of doing that encourages the needles of those palms to kind of finally roll and roll. And it turns out if you stomp just right, which I was able to do, it went through my shoe into the top of my foot, and I had to ask a student to get pliers while all the students gathered around me, seeing just how yell, you know, the pastor would yell and words that would come out of blessing. I think I yelled Hosanna. I think I want to say Hosanna in light of Palm Sunday. Uh, God saves, because I really felt I was dying. And I should also warn you that the needle's not only unfriendly, but it has a little bit of toxin on it. So not only was I able to experience that whole glorious palm tree experience, but then my foot throbbed for like three days. And all that's to say one thing. It's really interesting to me, like, people can drive by palm trees today and think nothing about them, right? You go down to San Clemente. There's a beautiful spot down in San Clemente, T Street, one of my beaches that I grew up with. And there's these beautiful palms that kind of overlook the coast. You have palm trees in front of them. And yet, once a year, we we talk about Palm Sunday, and we think, oh, that's so beautiful. And can you imagine what it actually probably looked like? Because we're going to talk a little bit about two things today. In Holy Week, I'm going to talk a little bit about Palm Sunday and a little bit about Passover. I feel like the two of those are kind of married together, so we'll spend a little bit of time in each one of them. 
Like, can you imagine the event of Jesus coming into Jerusalem this final time? And the reason why he's coming back is to celebrate Passover and the totality of people recognizing him cut palm branches, you know, like they're palm fronds, just like a, and, they, and they slowly begin to raise and lift them, acknowledging him and singing Hosanna. I mean, what an incredible moment that was. And part of this whole problem that I have is all these things were done so that they wouldn't forget. Everything about the, the feasts, they have seven different feasts. We're going to talk about all those coming up. But everything that Israel was given and these beautiful, incredible reminders of the symbolic things of, of raising and lowering yourself, of, of, of humbling yourself before the Messiah, everything about these things were so you wouldn't forget. And yet today, I guarantee you, if it wasn't for my little story and scars and pain, many of us have been driving by palm trees for years and just thinking, oh, it's just an interesting tree that grows where we live. And yet for me, it will never just be an interesting tree that grows where we live. It's part of history. You see, palm trees witness the Messiah. And palm trees were part of the Messiah's celebration. So today there's a lot of fun things to celebrate. And we mentioned the concept of Holy Week. Once again, being traditional good Protestants, a lot of us are not really familiar with maybe what Holy Week is. So let me quickly walk you through a little bit about Holy Week and what we're going to touch on this week. And maybe if you have some questions about it, you can kind of send in some questions to me and I can answer them for you, lady. But it always starts with Palm Sunday. Today. Today is the day that it starts. Jesus' return to Jerusalem. And why does Jesus have to return to Jerusalem? Because being a good Jew, he has to come and celebrate the Passover. That's why I said today, that's what we're going to focus on. He comes in to observe the Passover, so it starts with uh, Palm Sunday, and it works its way to the Passover, which is about Wednesday, and then it transitions to what's called Monday Thursday. Now, Monday Thursday is kind of a weird word. Growing up, I always felt like it was Monday through Thursday. I never really caught that Monday was a word. I don't know if you guys have been confused, but Monday actually is a word, okay? And the concept of Monday is a command to remember. So Monday, Thursday, the reason why it's a command to remember is because Thursday night is when Jesus had the Last Supper, Right? And the Last Supper, also known as the Eucharist, for those of you that like all the technical terms, the Eucharist, the Eucharist becomes one of our two ordinances, the other being baptism, right? So because it's a command to remember, along with all these other festivals, we call it Monday Thursday. Now, we're not going to be doing anything here Thursday, but it is part of the week. It also transitions into Good Friday, which we are going to do something Friday night. It's a little confusing. We're doing it Friday night, the 7th, at 6 so those of you who show Friday night the 7th at 7, you missed it, okay? It's Friday night the 7th at 6, and, and Bill will be doing that. And we're going to do some communion then, have some communion, and we're going to talk about how is it that we call Friday good when Friday is actually the day when Jesus is put on the cross? And that's a great question, right? But the idea that it's good for us is because without that sacrifice, then humanity had no hope. And so we've decided to call that good because of the essence of what it represents. It's Good Friday because it brings the idea that his death would save all of humanity, that he was the answer. Once again, Saturday is another event in there. We don't necessarily do a lot with Saturday, but it is called Holy Saturday. And the reason why, for those people who participate in Lent, okay, Lent starts uh, six weeks earlier with what's called Ash Wednesday, and people spend 40 days of fasting and preparation. So that ends, obviously, with the culmination of Easter Sunday, with the idea that Jesus triumphant, uh, rising from the dead, and that we're going to talk about how significant that is, much more to come, and following next Sunday. But for today, I really want to just focus with you guys on the triumphal entrant, Palm Sunday, and then we'll kind of transition a little bit to Passover. 
Now, one of the things I want to talk about before I get started is the idea that Jesus coming in, he had to come in on a donkey, okay? One of the things I think about when I think about this entry into town is why is it that Jesus had to come in a certain way? And the beautiful thing about the reason why he came in on Palm Sunday riding on the back of a donkey, lowly, was to fulfill something that had been said 500 years earlier. Now, for those of you that don't realize the Bible is full of beautiful and amazing prophecy, this is just one of those amazing things. If it says it in God's word, whether you understand it, whether I understand it, whether, whether I can teach it or comp comprehend it, if it says it in God's word, it's true. And whether or not it's happened yet or not, it will. And this is a beautiful thing because 500 years earlier, this is the verse that was written about this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey. Okay? Now that's an incredible point that 500 years earlier that was forecast. And here it was coming true. But I want to do something really quick because we have a tendency when something in the Bible is you know, like extreme or amazing or spectacular to just say that must be what it's all about. But I actually think that I found something this week that I want to share with you even before that. What about the conversation where Jesus asked two of the disciples, can you go into town and get me a donkey for free? <laughs> hey, you two, what I want you to do is I want you to go look for this specific animal and this other animal, and then I want you to go get those, no money, nothing given to them, and if they ask, just say, Jesus needs them, God needs them, okay? Imagine the conversation if you're one of the two disciples that he asked to go do that, what's going through your head. What did I sign up for? What exactly, what happened to the significant moments? What happens to the things that I'm willing to lay my life down for? And I couldn't help think about this week. In the, in the totality of Palm Sunday, all of a sudden, God was kind of overwhelming my heart. I remember I woke up and I went and ran and told my wife, I got to go write something. Get in my car and drive to church. And I wrote this whole paragraph. Why is it that when God asks us to do the mundane things, we kind of just say, ooh, maybe there's someone else to go get the donkey right? Maybe there's someone else to go do the menial tasks. Like, I'm your guy. I'm ready if you need me to do something spectacular. But the reality is that every single task, and this is what I got from the Lord, every single task about what happens in Holy Week, every single task about what Jesus did in his 33 years. He's 33 years when he's coming into town. It's the totality of his life. It's the culmination of the final week. And everything he's done, every time he asks someone to do it, was significant and important. Before I can even tell you guys about all the fabulous and amazing things I want to share with you that I've discovered this week, I just wanted to tell you this. God overwhelmed my heart with something this week. We have minimalized the task that God asked us to do. We have marginalized what is and what isn't significant, and we have prioritized the things that are seen as being significant. But this task right here reminds me, before fulfillment of a 500-year-old prophecy from Jeremiah could be done, two people had to be willing to go ask for a donkey for free. This morning, no matter what happens, no matter why you choose to come to church on Palm Sunday, Good Friday, or Easter, one of the beautiful things that will happen in the next few weeks of church is people out of tradition, out of historical reasoning, will say, you know what, something about this week is important, something about this is significant, and I want to be there, and I want to be part of it, and I want to make sure you realize something. Every time you ask someone to come to church, regardless of whether they come or not, could be the beginning of something not just significant, but monumental. Every time you ask someone to do something that seems so mundane, so trivial, and so below you, you have the opportunity to do something that fulfills prophecy. 
Because every single thing that's in the word of God is for one reason, to fulfill prophecy. And the prophecy that God has commissioned us and the prophecy that Jesus is trying to fulfill is, what is my father's will? And the father's will is this, that none would perish, right? None would perish. And so I want to get to this point and talk about how amazing the triumphal entry is and what it actually symbolizes, but I just can't do it before I get to this one point. So I'm going to pray. I forgot to pray again. I'm sorry, honey. I get too fired up. <laughs> Father God, first and foremost, I come before you this morning, and I am one who's been thinking about you all week long and been praying about this all week long and realized the simplistic nature of this message is go and get me a donkey. Go and be willing to do whatever I ask you to do, because what I have to do is beyond significant. I'm going to answer the Father's will, and anyone who partakes in helping me fulfill the Father's will is one of mine. To become great in this world, you must become last in this world. To become great in the kingdom of God, you must present yourself low in the kingdom of God. And Father, if there's one thing that Holy Week really showed me this week is that you were willing to do whatever it took. It's not what we're going to find out it's not what Israel wanted. They wanted a conquering king. They wanted a, a hero on a war horse, breathing fire. But you've never made it anything other than your father's will. Not my will be done, but yours, Father. I pray this morning, I pray this week, I pray for those watching this morning, that Passover, Palm Sunday, and Good Friday, the entirety of this entire Holy Week, Father, would simply be to draw that one person to the realization that without the blood of Jesus Christ covering their heart, there is no rescue from death. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And this morning, I pray that you would teach us that clearly. We ask you in son's precious and holy name. Amen. What a picture. What a picture it must have been. The streets lined with palm fronds cut, people laying their cloaks down, right? You have the cloaks, you have your outer garment and your inner garment. So they plus or minus had two garments. People are disrobing and putting their cloaks down and they're they're holding their palm branches, and they're saying something. They're saying something, and they're repeating it over and over again. Hosanna, Hosanna. What does it mean? Blessed is the one who saves. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of our Lord. And they're just showing praise, and they're, they've been waiting for, for a millennial of years. They've been waiting. They were told it was going to happen. And here it comes. And for a brief moment, the people see it, and the people engage him in the way that he should be engaged. But just like it is in our nature, for us to see something for a minute and realize how significant it is, they lose sight of it. They lose sight of it, and they go from saying, blessed is the name of the Lord, to just three, four, five days later, to saying, crucify him. Crucify the Messiah, crucify the one you've been waiting for for the entirety of your life. Crucify the one who pulled you from captivity. You were just Hebrews before he showed up, and he's made you the nation state that you are, and you're going to say crucify him. Not only are they going to say crucify him, but they're going to say and release Barabbas, a known rebel rouser, a known troublemaker, a known bottom of the barrel to society, and yet they lift him up and say, this is who we want, and we do not want our Messiah it has to be something that goes more significant than just fulfilling of prophecy. Passover has to be something that you understand allows the gates of heaven to open to all mankind. One of the things that I'm going to share with you this morning about Passover is the reality that we all like to celebrate holidays. And for us, our national holidays are like Christmas and Easter. 
Those are the two superstars that the whole world, regardless of religious understanding or not, they all stop and they all listen and they're all willing to even come to church for those two days. They don't know why, they just know it's significant. But let me tell you something, Romans 5.8 says this, that God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died. And what Passover does is it links together everything that we celebrate. It links together everything that we know. And did you know that Passover actually is the oldest tradition that we have? Passover is 3,500 years old. That's 1,500 years before the 2,000-year-old Easter and the 2,000-year-old Christmas that we celebrate. Now, I'm not saying they're not significant. Obviously, we need Christmas. The birth of Christ is the initiation of hope for the world, that somehow this small little baby that's being brought into the world will be the, the answer to something. But what is he the answer to? Sin, right? The problem is, is the reason why Passover is, is the results of sin is the world that we live in is not the same. The results of everything that's happening is all a result of sin. So Christ and Christmas give us that hope. And what does Easter help us celebrate? Victory over death. How important is victory over death? Well, Paul wrote a very specific verse explaining this answer. So why will I explain it? I'll simply read what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead... Then even Christ has not been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he is raised and that Christ came from the dead. Now, why is this so important? Because otherwise we're trapped in our sins. If Jesus isn't the firstborn of the dead, if Jesus hasn't reconciled the Old Testament system of sacrifice, right, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was established that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, right? Now, today in our world, that seems kind of barbaric, and talking about blood might make a little, some people uncomfortable, except for my two nurses that are in the house this morning, and talking about blood just seems perfectly normal for them, possibly. But blood was something that was beyond significant years ago. It was something that people understood, and so something had to die for something to live, the problem was with the Old Testament sacrificial system is it made it perfectly clear. It simply covered the sin. It didn't abolish the sin. So covering, over covering, over covering, but the sin still existed. How is that going to be reconciled? It's, it's only reconciled in one way, in the Passover. What happens in the Passover is Christ simply lets the world know, I am the sacrificial lamb that in, breaks the entirety of the system that covers it. And then you are paid for in full. And then my blood now covers you. Now, one of the things I thought was really interesting about this is Passover has been celebrated for 3,500 years by the Jewish people. It has what's called the Seder, the meal. Um, I have not been able to partake in one of those, but I was asked this week to go do one. So I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to enjoy one. But every aspect of the Passover meal, every aspect, every component is symbolic. Why? Because remember, all the feasts, everything they're doing is to remind them who God is and what God has done. And what has God done in the Passover? He saved them. He saved them from the inevitable death. Not one thing about that Passover has changed except for one thing. Now, this is shocking when I found this out. I don't know if you guys know this because as Gentiles, maybe it's not as significant to us. But in AD 70, when Rome came in and conquered Israel and Jerusalem for the final time, they destroyed everything to the ground. 
the temple that Israel, that if you ever go to Israel now and you get a chance to go and you get a chance to maybe go to the wall of Solomon, which is basically the foundation, that's all that's left of the temple. That's where they shove the cracks of the, in the prayers. They put them in the cracks right there. That's all that's left of the temple. And because of that, in AD 70, they changed the Passover meal from eating lamb to no longer being allowed to eat lamb. Isn't that crazy? The entirety of the Passover meal, as we're going to see today, is it's focused on one thing. Its symbolic nature is simply understanding not only who the lamb is, but the significance of the lamb and what the lamb covering your house actually does. Yet they believe that because the sacrificial system which was instituted in the temple was no longer able to be done, that they abolished the lamb. Church, I don't know about you, but this week I found myself praying for my messianic brothers and sisters we have a few in the church by the way they're very rare less than three percent of the public is messianic we have a few in the church which is incredible but to be a true believer to be a jew who truly believes that jesus christ is the messiah it comes with the kind of risk of realizing that your family may disown you for they still hold even today that the messiah has not come and yet it's their ceremonies it's it's their words it's their traditions and all these other things that they've had that we've been grafted into that we can see so clearly and yet they've decided to remove the lamb from the meal i couldn't help but find myself this week praying and thanking god for the messianic that we have in this church and praying for jewish people in general just so that we they would see and understand just how close they were to something because Part of what the story, the storyline for today is, how many of us have traditions? How many of us have rites and rituals? How many of us have things that we do that supposedly we do to remember who God is and what he's done for us, but we miss the Messiah? Because the reality of today is, and I'll jump to the punchline for you, is they missed the Messiah. 3,500 years and seven festivals, an entire calendar built on one thing, reminding and remembering and acknowledging who God is and what God has done. And as we stand here today, that nation has still missed the Messiah. I want to read uh, the Passover for you, and I want to remind you just how significant it is. But I also want to just let you know, Passover is the first of seven festivals. A festival in the Bible is just take the word feasts, and a big feast is a festival. That's why the word feast is inside of there. The seven festivals are something inside of the sacred calendar for the Jewish people, and it starts with Passover. Okay? Passover is not just an event of any kind of significance. It's the significant event. They decided to put it at the beginning of all their events so that it would literally set the pace for the entirety of the year. That you would not even think about going into the year or to the unleavened bread or first fruits or to Pentecost or to trumpets or Day of Atonement or finish with Booth of Tabernacles and celebrate these first fruits without realizing where it all comes from. The symbolic nature of it means that it covered everything from creation in the account of Genesis, all the way to the Exodus and the birth of a nation. Remember that the Passover releases the Hebrews from captivity in Egypt to become their own nation state. It was God's opportunity to show them that it's the most crucial thing for us to understand. Without Passover, there is no explanation for why we need forgiveness of sins, right? Like I mentioned, the Old Testament system covered it up. The sacrificial system that Jesus provided obliterates it. He says it's done. To tell aside, paid in full. I am the fullness of it. What does the Bible say about Passover? Well, within the Bible, there's massive confirmation. There's confirmation from the apostles. There's confirmation from even theologians at the time that write. Paul wrote this in AD 50. So this would be 17 years after Jesus' death. 
1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us. John then confirms about 100 years after, about A.D. 120, when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Everything about Passover, everything about Jesus is all connected and intertwined together with this idea of this lamb, this blemished, unblemished lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It's mentioned 70 times in the Bible. That's a lot of affirmation. It's mentioned in 15 different books in the Bible. That's a lot of affirmation. And it's mentioned 28 times in the New Testament. So it's a continuum from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament to make sure that we don't miss it. And one of the things that's been missed is why was God speaking so harshly to Pharaoh? What, what was God actually trying to establish with Pharaoh? And so I'm going to read this passage for you, and I think this will help explain. Exodus 12, 12. This is from uh, NASB. People are always asking me what version I read. I read NASB, New American Standard. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt, and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. Significance to come. I'll explain that to you in a few minutes. I will bring judgment upon all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. One of the things I want you to hear in that, it was the Lord speaking to Pharaoh directly and letting him know that I am God, okay? Pharaoh is one of the most powerful people in the world, and one of the things that happened in this whole Passover event, this was part of the 10 plagues, okay? This is the culmination of all the plagues. This is the 10th and final plague, but one of the things that I also found this week that was interesting is that each one of the plagues, this would be good for your small group studies, each one of the plagues has a correlation to an Egyptian god. Yes, interesting, right? And because that correlation is there, he's literally going to down the line. Oh, you want to worship the Nile? Boom, I'll turn the Nile into blood. Oh, you want to worship frogs? Boom, I'll make frogs a pestilence. He literally walks down each plague trying to tell Pharaoh, hey, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to make this clear. When I say Yahweh and you don't say my whole name, there's a reason why. I am God and I'm trying to get your attention. I want my people group back, right? What was the message that Moses carried to the Pharaoh? You're saying it, Moses was in Egypt, let my people go, right? Do you guys don't remember those songs? Where's Tom? I need Tom. When I need an old-fashioned song, I just need Tom. Tom will remember that. He sent someone to him and said, hey, look, this people group, the one you call the Hebrews, right? That's my people group, and you need to let them go. Why do you need to let them go? Because they need to worship me. They need to worship me. Isn't that crazy? I think, I think, about, what, I think about what Israel's gone through. I think about all the different things their legacy is. And that God wanted them identified to worship them and that it's still such a struggle for them to worship. Anyways, he sent these devastation plagues and all these different things upon him. And each time the Pharaoh's response was hardened. No. Right? And that's another thing I was thinking about this morning. How many times has God reached out to you? Maybe it hasn't been a plague, but maybe it's been something devastating. Right? There's plenty of us in here that have cancer. There's plenty of us in here who have some kind of terrible medical whatever. There's car crashes. There's alcoholism there's divorce think of the different plague or thing that god has placed in your life and every single time god has tried to reach out to you and say i'm the god over all that bring that issue to me right we talked about last week talk to me about it right i don't need babbling or mumbling talk to me about what you've been through and each time we go through something adverse and each time we feel like god might be trying to say hey i'm in this i'm walking you through this what is our response like pharaoh right we harden ourselves i've actually been in rooms before where i've talked to people 
and they, loss of a child. You talk about something devastating. You're coming into a room and you're talking to someone about losing a child. And they'll harden their heart and say, how could God do this? I'll never talk to him again. Well, let's just take a moment, church, and ask something. What does the promise that Bathsheba and David have about a child that was lost? Where was that child? Lost? No. He was affirmed himself that the child was with me. God himself affirmed David. Even in your sin, even in your horrific act that you committed, I have that child. Maybe that was merciful on your part because you don't know how that child would have grown up to or what would have happened to that child. That child has never been more home than it is now. There's nothing more sacred to our father than children, right? Sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes we don't see the fullness of something. And Pharaoh clearly did not see the fullness of what God was trying to reveal to him. So he buffeted and he said, you know what? I resist. So each time God ramped up. And each time God ramps up, and I can't help but think in maybe some of our lives, God's tried to reach out to you and maybe show you something, and you've buffeted, and you've said, you know what, that's what you're going to give me? I, I mean, I used to play basketball, and now my knee doesn't work. I used to do this, and now, and I, I, you know what, God, boom, resistance. And he's like, be careful. With each resistance comes another opportunity to see who I am. And finally, he says, okay, Pharaoh, what's the most sacred thing you have? Firstborn son. Yeah, who's going to carry on the name? Who's going to be Pharaoh's legacy? I, my, my son, I don't know if he's back there or not, but I mean, I have a grandson. I have one namesake left in my family's line. My older brother did not have any males, and my middle brother didn't have any children. So one of my aunts somewhere in the Midwest has one of those family heritage charts on the thing, you know, like I think it goes all the way back to like 1800, 1700. So I can see my family, Lee, going all the way back. So when we were Lee Clares, and they made him shorten their name from Lee Clares to Lees. Beautiful history, Robert E. Lee, all these wonderful things. But I look at my grandson right now, and I realize something. His name's Adam Kenneth, okay? Adam, first man, Kenneth, after his grandfather. But right now, when I see that firstborn, it represents everything about hope for me. Right? I would do anything to, to protect that and to keep that. And I can't imagine Pharaoh thinking... Anything more about seeing his firstborn son and thinking what that represents to him. The kingdom, right? The, the entirety of Egypt and all the lands that have been conquered, all waiting to be bestowed upon this. So God says, okay, Pharaoh, last chance. Not only firstborn, but first of livestock. Once again, we're not an agrarian society. I, don't, I think I know most of you, we have one or two horses in here, maybe, Okay. But this is the idea of animals and livestock was well known to them, even to the Jews, right? So the firstborn was to be redeem the redeemer, the firstborn son, the redeemer. The firstborn animal was always to be the sacrifice. Why? Because the tabernacle of booths, you gave your first fruits, your first of anything that God had given you, always gave it back to the Lord. So what is he doing in Passover? He's telling them, I'm obliterating everything you have and everything you know, and I will make you realize that from you and every single person in Egypt, I am the Lord. I found a couple of things interesting as I started to read this passage. Even though there's destruction, even though there's all these other things, he only took the firstborn. You're saying that doesn't seem, that still seems harsh. Wasn't there a family in every house? I mean, it's the Lord, right? I mean, the, the angel of the Lord that helped somebody fight a battle one time killed 185,000 one night in battle. So if the angel of the Lord is going to be partaking of something and the Lord's going to create destruction, he had more ability to do a lot more devastating things, right? And he only took the first of the animals. Well, it still seems harsh. No, he could have taken all of the animals, right? He can do whatever he wants, but everything about this whole thing is always telling him one thing. 
I am the Lord. On uh, the 15th of Nisan, which is not the car company, once again, 1446 BCE, God visits the 10th and final plague. By the way, the Passover is so documented in history that even for people who don't believe, if you have someone who's kind of curious about things, one of the fun things I think you tell them is just look into archaeology. Think about archaeology for a moment. This is totally not in my notes. This is last second. So archaeology, as you know it and I know it, is what? The opportunity to look for old things, right? But that's not really what it is because where do they go to look for old things? Where is the one place telling them there's this and this and this happened and this happened and this happened? And if you look there, you're going to find this. Where is the only place in the world that tells them all those things? Amen. Do you know there's other religions and other beliefs that have their own Bibles and their own information? None of those places have ever been discovered. Not one archaeological fact exists from one of the most major cults or religions in the world. Not one historical fact has ever been found. But everything about archaeology is simply predicated on looking for these little things, these little tidbits that are all throughout the Bible. And I think it's so amazing because if you look through the history books, Jesus coming to Jerusalem over the Passover weekend is documented, right? The fact that, that, that it's been going on for 3,500 years is documented. It's super powerful for me to realize that what we believe in, we're not believing blind. Take the time to look into our faith. Take the time to challenge God's word. And I think you'll see it every time it responds with, I'm here, I'm the Lord, test me and know that I'm good. He tells Moses, he tells Aaron, I'm going to pass over their homes. I'm going to take their firstborn. I'm going to take that first livestock. I'm going to do everything I can so that he will know what? That I am the Lord. And he gives Moses and Aaron these final instructions. Eat the meal, have your staff in your hands, and your shoes on. Why? Because you need to be ready. I'm coming. Church, I love this passage. I mean, it's a really long passage, but I've got to read this. This is good stuff, okay? This is the Passover passage and the instruction that Moses and Aaron got and what they needed to do to be ready. Along with that is going to be the information on the meal, the Passover meal, and then how, how come they need to remember it. So they're not just doing it because Moses or Aaron said this would be a good thing to remember. God says, remember this forever. This is a forever ceremony. Okay, glasses. Water. All right, here we go. This is Exodus 12, for those of you who want to read along. Exodus 12, 21 through 30. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, Go pick out a lamb or a young goat for each of your families and slaughter them for the Passover animal. Drain the blood into a basin and take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood and then brush the hyssop across the top and the sides of the door frame on your house. Then no one may go out through the door until morning. 23. For the Lord will then pass through the land and strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the top and the sides of your doorframe, the Lord will then pass over your home. And he will not permit the death angel to enter into your house and to strike you down. Remember these instructions are permanent. A permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. A must observe forever. When you enter into the land that the Lord has promised you to give you, he will continue to, you will continue to observe the ceremony. 26. Why? And then your children will ask. This is so amazing, right? We're still wondering why our kids still ask today. Kids have been asking since the beginning of time. Kids have been asking. Kids have been watching. Kids have been looking. Everything that you're doing is saying something to them. Once again, bonus. This is not, and I just read this, and boom. This is not in the notes because 
this is what Sunday means to me. Everything you do on Sunday, your kids are watching. Everything you do, every tradition you have, your kids are watching. And eventually your kids are going to want to know, why did we do that? Right? It's built into the DNA. And this is so important because Jesus is saying this. Your children will ask, what does this ceremony mean? And you will reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over our houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck down the Egyptians, he spared our families. And when Moses had finished speaking, all the people bowed to the ground and worshipped. So did the people, just as the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. And that night at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. None, none escaped. And the firstborn of their livestock was also killed. For Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up in the night and heard a loud wailing, such was never heard throughout the land of Egypt, for that there was not a single house that someone had not died. This is powerful stuff, church. This is powerful stuff because he wants you to realize something. This is symbolic at this time to a single event, to a single people group. This is between God and Pharaoh and about the release of the Hebrew nation. Okay. But the beautiful part of it is it's symbolic. The symbolism is now understood because we realize that in the singularity of an event, what God was saying to them is what God is still saying to us now. Okay? If our house is not covered, if our heart is not covered in the blood of Christ, top, bottoms, and side, if, if we are not covered by the blood of Christ, then when life comes and the, the angel of death comes, which it will come knocking for all of us, right? Only Enoch and Elijah have escaped this. When it comes, all will perish. But what you perish to and for, it's subjective. And if you're covered by the blood of Christ, there's a whole different understanding. One of the things I found interesting as I went back into the commentaries is we don't see the door now like they saw the door then, okay? Door schmore glass, wood, whatever it is, pretty architectural, it's just a door. The door was considered 2,000, 3,000 years ago a place of communication. This is interesting stuff, right? Because we all know the passage, behold, I stand at the and knock. If any man opens the door, I will come in and he will sup with me and me with him, right? The simplistic nature of God's word sometimes when I read stuff like this and I'm like, oh, this commentary, guys, commentary is like a page and a half of the value and the significance of the door. That's because the value, and the, there was nothing else now. So it didn't have multiple ways in and multiple ways out. It was one door. And that door was everything. And everyone you talked to and all your relationships usually occurred at the door, right? You lived in a communal, so it was like house, 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 house. The, the neighborhood was like a U, okay? And then there was a gate into that, protecting the people into that. All the doors usually faced towards each other. And it was how everyone communicated with everyone. They would have understood this, right? Because not only would they have seen the blood on their door, but they would have seen the blood on the other door, right? Everyone would have known. They would have been in understanding. And what does the door ultimately communicate? Come in, in an invitation to come in or stay out, right? I mean, isn't this so amazing that the God of the universe would send his son to give us the information to say, I'm there, I'm standing at the door, and I'm knocking. But that does not mean I'm in, right? And a lot of people, once again, like I, my concern for this message is, we have the signs, we have the palm trees, we have the ordinances, we do communion, we do baptism, we have all these signs and wonders and things that we do, but we miss the Messiah, right? 
we know he's at the door. We, we hear his voice. Maybe we have one of those cool peepholes where we see him, right? And we kind of recognize his face. But is he in? Is he in? No, he's out. He's still outside. And he's saying, hey, look, you've got to cover this door and be covered by this for one thing. Because when I come over, if you're not covered, I'm coming in. And if I come in, it will be death and destruction for your family and for your livestock. I read one commentary, and I just want to share it with you because I think it's interesting because whether it's the death angel, which could be maybe Michael. Michael seems to be the one that kind of does the destruction of the Bible. Gabriel seems to be the one in the Bible who's the messenger. He's the one who comes and tells Mary. Whatever that whole concept is, the one thing this guy said, he says, there's a passage in the Bible where the Lord says, I protect you like a mother chicken kind of protect her hens. You know, I cover you like this, right? And under my wings, you're covered. And his whole thing was, that's what Jesus did. And this thing, as the angel was going from house to house, he said it was like the Lord was covering that house. I can't help but think about that, like, as a, as a man of God, like, who wants to cover his family and make sure that his family knows about God. is like, this is a great opportunity for you to realize what you actually do when you provide Christ as the covering for your family. That's literally what you're doing. You're providing that haven, right? Like, that protection from the wind and the elements and the rain. Matter of fact, there's times in life where the animal that's protecting will actually die protecting from the elements right you, you guys see that chick uh, the what was that thing in, in big bear fur the eagle the eagle you know they're showing the snow was all covering it right but she just never left what because there was a chick underneath her and it's freezing and the snow's building up no just sitting right there if, if her life has to go then it has to go but protection covering these are the kind of concepts I see when I think about what God's saying. He's like, I'm the one that covers you. My blood, the cost of my blood is it's covering over your doorframe. And I also thought it was kind of cool and it said, and once it's covered, no one goes out. No one goes out. Why? Because it's sealed. It's sealed. For those of you who struggle with kind of like, can I come to faith and will I be lost? I think this is another kind of unsung hero kind of in there. I think we're sealed. Like when we come to Christ, it's no accident. When you give your life to Jesus and confess your sins and say, Lord, I, want to, I can't do this without you. I could never be anything without you. I recognize you. Come into my heart. Forgive me for sins. I confess you. Be my Lord and Savior. I think there's this concept of sealing that occurs with that. And I think that's what he's saying. No one goes back out. That house is sealed and protected by the Lord. Why? Because the Lord will pass through, so the Lord is the one who guards. And this is a concept that we got all the way back from Nehemiah. If God asks you to do something, small, medial, trivial, whatever your mindset is, but if God asks you to do something, who's responsible to enable you to do that? The Lord, right? And this is what's so exciting to me. It's like he's asking these, these guys to stand in faith and to do something in faith. And in re the result of that is if we stand in faith, we will not be destroyed, Church, that's something that everyone even today is so worried about. You know, the sky is falling. We used to laugh at Chicken Little, but you know what? COVID made a lot of people feel that the sky was really falling and that people all of a sudden became threatening and life became really unstable and everything about it was like, oh no, the sky, everything. It can still be that way. Tomorrow there might be a new plague. Maybe bubonic plague comes back or the black plague or some other plague comes back. Something may cover, but I want you to realize something. If you're in Christ and you're covered by the blood of Christ, he stands to cover you from the destroyer. And that should be encouraging. It should have been encouraging to them to realize something. I, 185,000 people, when the last time I read about something about, if the Lord wants to do something and wake the world up, he can do it in a heartbeat. How many people die every single day and we just kind of become numb to it? The signs and wonders were there and the people missed it. What did they miss? 
that this is a lasting ordinance in verse 24 and 25 between God and his people to say, hey, this, you might be grafted into Israel now, Gentile. You might be grafted in and you may not understand why you have baptism and why you have communion, but everything about what you do, even going to church on Sunday. Why do we go to church on Sunday? Well, because I have to, because my parents went. You're really missing out on the opportunity to explain to your kids why you go to church on Sunday. Nobody has to do anything. We have free will. And free will means if you don't want to go to church, you don't have to go to church. But you get to go to church, and you get to say thank you, and you get to refill your tanks, and you get to do all that out of what? Out of the tradition of reminding yourself who it's all about. Who gave you six days in your week to go live your life? Who paid that price for you to even have those talents, skills, and abilities to make whatever money you will make in life? And once you get that money, and once you get those resources, whose stuff is it really? Because nobody's dragging it behind them when they're on their way to the funeral home, right? There's no Hertz, there's no U-Haul behind a Hertz, right? That's the old saying. Ask Tom, he sells really expensive uh, Hertz, but you don't, there's no trailer with them. You get the body and that's it, right? And trust me, it is a hollow, empty shell when you look at someone. Uh, as, a, as a pastor and a chaplain, I've seen my fair share. The person you know and you see and we love and whatever, when that person's gone and you look at them again, it will be a stark contrast to you about just how void life actually is once the spirit of a human being is gone, right? And he's saying, hey, look, it's a lasting ordinance. I want you to remember this. I want you to do this. Why? Because I want you to think about the cost of your freedom. Not, this is not the American freedom. This is not Memorial Day or Veterans Day. That's a different kind of freedom. This is spiritual freedom. The reason why you and I are under Romans 8, no longer under condemnation, right? There's no condemnation for those in Christ. The reason why we're in that capacity is because of this action, and if you forget that action, you might drive by a palm tree and think it's really no big deal. But I want you to drive by palm trees from this time on and the rest of your life and every time you think about it, and think about that palm tree bending and think about that palm tree swaying in the wind and what is it doing? It's worshiping God. It's saying, you are Hosanna. You are, blessed is the one who comes to save because that's what he was. He was the sacrificial lamb that came to slay, that came to save. Descendants, don't forget about it. Your kids are going to ask. And trust me, your kids are asking now, why are we doing what we're doing? Why do we go to church? Why do we pray before we do this? Why, 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 why? Because it's the right thing to do. And is there ever a, a time to do the wrong thing? No, you do the right thing for the right reason, and then you let God take care of the results. That's something I've been teaching for years. You can't always do the right thing and always get the right results. Sometimes we raise our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and they still run amok, right? Sometimes we don't raise our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and they run right to the Lord. There's no rhyme or reason in it. So if you're going to fail, fail this way. Do the right thing for the right reason and let God take care of the results. That's one way you can disconnect yourself from the judgment and kind of the phobia that it's not going to work out and realize I'm in his protection. I'm in his covering. And as long as I trust his word and do what he says, the results are up to him. What does this mean about God's word? Verse 29. It says, if it says it will happen, then it will happen. And who will be spared from the judgment? Will the king be spared? No. Was the prisoner's son spared? That's a pretty good disparity right there, right? From the king to the jailer, no one's spared. That's symbolic today is saying the same thing. Who's going to be spared in the world today? Who's going to be spared from having to sit at the beam of seat and face God one day and saying, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? I presented it to the totality of the world. What did you specifically do with the life and death and burial and resurrection of my son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if your answer is not time out, where's Jesus? Because I, he's got to speak for me because I, I know if I speak to God, I'm, this is not going to be good. 
it's going to be a problem, right? And it's beautiful for the believer to realize if you are in Christ, then rather than that whole moment occurring and you going through the what it's going to be like, Jesus simply steps in front. The advocate, right? Those of you who ever had a legal issue and you had to hire an attorney, that's your advocate. He is your public advocate. He's, he's the one that speaks to the judge. Jesus intercedes for us and says, God, Father, this is one of ours. This is one of mine. This is one of yours. And Romans 8 is now in effect. There's no condemnation for this one in me. I don't know, firstborn king, firstborn son, whatever it was, everything paid the price and every animal that was taken was a reminder to them that even though you have this need to give a sacrifice, you haven't even been given the sacrifice, so I'll take the sacrifice. And when I take the sacrifice, what I'm letting you know is this. This is the way it should be. More Mandalorian quotes, it's not going to help, but this is the way, okay? And if you don't want to give me what's mine, then I'm going to take it. And eventually, what's going to happen to every human being, and the Bible says it's appointed for a man to be born and appointed for a man to die. And it also says this, that one day, every knee will bend and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, that sounds glorious, but the problem is, it doesn't mean it's unto salvation. It simply means it's unto the fulfillment of what Scripture has said. So my encouragement to you is to make sure that that knee bends and that tongue confesses while you're still alive. That might be the single highest, greatest priority for you coming into this Holy Week, into this Passover week, is to realize that the signs and wonders have been there for the whole time. But until you open the door and bend that knee and confess, please come in, I need you to be my Lord and Savior. The relationship is not the same. I have relationship with people. I have a relationship with the lady at Del Taco. She gives me my food every Thursday. I couldn't tell you if she's going to heaven or not because all she does is give me my food, Right? I have relationships with a lot of people throughout the town. Part of my police chaplain work is to have a lot of really significant relationships. But I can't invoke the name of the Lord until they invoke it to me. Until they invite me in to speak that truth. So five years, six years later, I have very, very close relationships. I've recently been called by someone and I think they're going to ask me to marry them. So, I mean, God is actually using that whole thing. But I have to do that under the pretense that I can't shove Jesus down their throat. Matter of fact, I got to put Jesus on the shelf and live in such a way that what I'm trying to evoke every day and the way that I live is this is what Jesus would do. This is how Jesus would live. This is what Christianity should look like. And whether you take my animals or whether you take my son, I can't even imagine how loud the wailing would be if someone came and took my firstborn son. Now, it's easy for me as a grandparent, especially at this stage of my life, to kind of put myself in that role. Thankfully, I have an office where I can close the door and kind of be alone. But just imagine for yourself what it was like to have an entire nation. Okay? This is not 100,000 people in Costa Mesa. This is all of Egypt. The entirety of Egypt all simultaneously have lost to that magnitude. Every once in a while, we come to church and we hear a baby crying or something. And depending on who you are, like me, I love it. I, love, I always tell parents who bring babies to church, Thank you. You are blessing me. Let little Jackson holler from the highest. You let any. Why? Because that means we're alive. It means that God is blessing. It means that children are being a blessing, that the next generation of believers being edified and being part of what we're doing. But can you imagine if in one night all of us had that loss, what the sound of that would be like? Where's that reminder, Egypt? Why isn't Egypt the most Christian nation in the world? Wouldn't that be enough to break your back? I've had people tell me, Pastor Jeff, I will believe in God if he shows himself to me. That is a lie. 
That is an absolute lie. Don't let anyone ever tell you that they would believe in God if he manifested or showed himself to them. That does not mean anything. God has been manifesting and showing himself to people since the beginning of time, and they still don't believe. It has to do with a hardness of heart. It has to do with what Pharaoh had. Egypt had the same thing. They hardened their heart. You don't think every person in that town had to wake up in the morning and say, what happened? Around the coffee shop, around the watering well, around whatever they were at, what happened? What did we do to deserve this? And from that, you think that entire nation would have turned. It's not the case. Church, my prayer for you this morning is the same prayer that I would have had for Egypt 3,500 years ago when he knocked on the door and simply said, I'm coming. I've warned my people, Moses and Aaron, have your walking staff in your hand, have your shoes on, and eat in such a way that you're ready to go. But I'm coming. And don't leave until I've come because it's not going to be good. And if I said it, it's going to be it, okay? You don't have to understand it, but it's going to be it. And on church, and I'm telling you this, the Lord said that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So someday, at some point of all of our lives, a human being's life will pass and they will stand before God and they have to reconcile one thing. What did you do with Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection? What have you done with the information presented to you about the life of Jesus Christ? And if their answer is, well, I went to church, and I put some money in the box, and I, and I tried to help some people down in Mexico, and I worked on a food line. Those are all wonderful and beautiful things. But that's not opening the door of your heart and asking Jesus, come into my life. I confess my need for a Savior. I confess the fact that I can't offer anything to the Old Testament sacrificial system of blood. There's no way all I can do is cover my sins. I need my sins abolished. I need them obliterated. And I need them paid in full. And there's only one person that can do that. Would you come into my life? Would you make yourself known to me today? And would you pass over my house? Would you pass over my family and give us a chance to represent the goodness that is our Father? Let me pray. Father God, this morning, Passover, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and even Easter present all of us this incredible opportunity, one full week of faith. It's kind of like taking a kid to camp for a week, where he gets a chance to be a Christian for a week. And one of the things I know from many, many, many camps, Father, is just the shock and awe of being a Christian for an hour or two at church, and then trying to be a Christian for a whole week. And maybe this morning there's people in here, and they're just and they're hearing the message, and it's kind of refreshing themselves. And I pray, Father, that they would refresh, use that refresh button, refresh it, refresh it, refresh it, until it becomes a new, and kind of like the power that it once was to a people group who was captive, who was captive and in slavery and treated horrifically. And 500,000 men, women, and children were released to become a nation state. Because you told their boss, I am the truth. I am the God of all. And I want your attention and I want you to know something. That unless you're covered in the blood, there is no escape from this. And if you are covered by the blood, then not only is there an escape, but the scripture then goes on to affirm this. Death, where is your sting? That's a glorious thing to think about this morning. It's why when I drive by palm trees that are swaying in the wind, I think they're still bowing to you. And they're still singing Hosanna. 
Because the rocks are going to cry out. He is the Messiah. He is God. He, behold, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's him. It's Jesus. Give your life to him today. If there's anyone hearing this message in the building, online, later on in time, I pray that today would be the day that they go from seeing Jesus at the door and hearing Jesus at the door to, to opening the door to asking him to enter in. Father, we do it all and say it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.
pray that if you have anything you need to pray about, something that's kind of unreconciled, please stay afterwards. Let us know. If you need to connect with us in any way, those white boxes on the back are the best way to do that. If you don't have a name tag or you want someone to pray for you, you want to be baptized, talk to someone, you can put that in the box. And just want to let you know, too, we also kind of re-brought back the little business card, invite card. Uh, Ken tells me that they were part of the church for a long time. We rebuilt those this weekend, so they're back on the back table um, it's just a small little, looks like a business card, but it allows you to invite somebody to church. It has the directions on it. And then with Easter and Good Friday and everything coming up, this is a good time, church, to just break out of whatever you've been doing. If it's not been working for you, then make peace with it, set it to the side, and just choose this day who you will serve. Pray about one name specifically in your world, in your oikos, someone you talk to or speak with, and make that effort to go out and reach out to them. Because I tell you what, the Lord is coming. He's going to knock on every door. And one day every house is going to have to be reconciled unto the Lord. So let's pray that the Lord will pass over. God bless you guys, and we'll see you Friday night at 6 o'clock. He's the name above all names. He's worthy of all praise. My heart will sing how great 
will see how great, how great.